0: you're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you've said that your word is living and active sharper than any sword, penetrating to the division of soul and spirit joints and marrow. You have made it able to judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So, please enable me to, be, to speak your word faithfully today and please cause it to do what you have promised it will. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen brothers and sisters in Christ and visitors here today, I want to begin this talk in a strange place. I am going to put out everything that I need to out on the table today for you and just tell you what you need to know Uh, and uh, so here we go. Let me tell you that this passage that we are looking at today is a difficult one in case you hadn't realized and in fact the more you get into it the more difficult it becomes. and the difficulties are very human difficulties. What I mean is that the problems here are not exactly what the text is... Uh, and what I, what I mean to say is that the problem here is not, exact, not what the text is actually saying, no. I think the problem is the theological and moral undergirdings that we often see peeking through the surface. And there isn't just one of them, that's the problem. <laughs> the passage abounds with them. It's full of them. And, uh, and that meant I had to work out how I would deal with them when I tried to explain this passage to you. You couldn't dodge it, could you? So you, know, you would come and say, Andrew, why didn't you mention this and so on? So <laughs> that meant I had to work really hard. And my solution? I decided I wouldn't hide the problems for you, but I'd deal with them. My strategy was this. One, I'm going to tell you what I think the main problems in this text are. Two, I'm going to tell you what I think can be said definitively about this passage and from this passage three I'm going to tell you what I think can be said from elsewhere in the Bible that might help with this passage and finally I'm going to explain what I think we should do in response to what we find let's see what God has to teach us from his word today Uh, let's start with my first question or issue it's about the apparent harshness of God now I bet you spotted it even in those last few lines of our Bible reading but look, I want you to focus earlier on. Look at verse 3. God says to Saul these things. Now go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Do not spare them. Kill men and women, infants and nursing babies, oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. That is the ancient language of holy war. And to us who were once God's enemies but have been forgiven through Christ, this seems barbaric and cruel. So That's my first question. Why such harshness? My second question has to do with the anger of Samuel. I want you to have a look at verse 11 with me. Our version of the Bible describes Samuel as angry. It doesn't identify who he is angry with. He could be that he's angry with Saul. Or it could be that he's angry with God. If the second option is right, what do you do with that? If it's wrong, is it it wrong? And if it is wrong, why doesn't God do something about it? If it's okay, then is it okay for us to get angry with God? We're getting deeper and deeper, aren't we? Now, my third question. Skim down to verse 29. Verse 29 says that God does not lie or change his mind. However, other parts of the Bible raise another side. For example, the books of Joel and Jonah and many other parts of the Bible tell us that God does change his mind. So, so what do we make of this? Okay, so there are some of the questions that arise out of the passage for me. There are others, but they're the ones I think of most substance. However, let me tell you that I think it's possible to answer each one of my questions. I'm not sure that in my sermon I can do them all justice, enough justice, but I think I can give you enough leads about them. Okay? So uh, I want to say to you that if these things are overwhelming for you, though, then I'm more than happy to talk with you about them afterwards or for you to send me an email or whatever and say I'd like to have a chat with you sometime, Andrew, or to chat with one of the other pastors here. But what I want to concentrate on today is what is clear in this passage. You see, I think that while there are a number of problems here in this passage, the central point of the passage is very clear. Let's get down to work. Let's see if we can get at the heart of it. Okay, so start with the Amalekites, and I'd encourage you to have your Bibles open or whatever digital form you use and so on, so that you can follow and check out what I'm saying. First, let's think about the Amalekites for a moment. The Amalekites appear in the Bible well earlier than this. They appear back in the book of Exodus. And there, God tells Moses to write down something that was to be remembered by the, na- by the nation as the days went on. And that is, it was God's intention to blot out the memory of, of Amalek under heaven. Then in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 to 19, Moses tells Israel they are to remember and not forget what the Amalekites did to the people of God when they were journeying through the land out of Egypt. Friends, God loves his people. God is a God of his word. As Hannah says in the very first chapter or two of this book of Samuel, he is a God of justice and holiness. He remembers sin and he treats sin seriously. He punishes sin. And Saul can have no doubt about these things. He cannot go into the events of this chapter with the excuse of ignorance. Next thing I want you to do is look with me at verse 29. Samuel tells Saul, The Eternal One of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man who changes his mind. Now I want you to look at verse 11 in our passage today. God says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. Now look at verse 35. Our translation says, Samuel mourned for Saul and the Lord regretted he had made Saul king over Israel. I wonder if you can see what's going on here. If you're an original Hebrew person listening to this speech, then in verse 11 you would have heard that God does this activity. In verse 29 you would have heard that God does not do this activity. In verse 35, you would have heard again that he does do this activity. So what do we have here? What's going on? Well, at the very least, we should be careful about what verse 29 says. Does that make sense? It means it may be a word for Saul particularly at this time, or it may be a word that's necessary for him pastorally to help him, or it may be a word of Samuel's that does not have the endorsement of God at all. I suppose you could go that way. Or it may be that it has to be understood in the light of verses 11 and 35. Whatever it is, we have to treat it carefully. We need to deal with the Bible well. Third thing I want to say is that the core of this passage is about sin. Let me show you what I mean. Look at how the passage starts. In verses 2 and 3, God has a clear word for for Saul. Saul's actions in this chapter have been equally clear. Where God said, do not spare, in verse 3, he spares, in verse 9. Where God said, kill, in verse 3, he takes Agag alive, in verse 8. Where God commands that he completely destroy, in verse 3, Saul and his army are not willing to completely destroy, in verse 9. In other words, can you see what Saul's doing? Saul is standing above God's word. He hears God's word, he knows God's word, he stands over that word and he judges that word and he does what he himself thinks is is right. He assumes the position of himself ascertaining what is good and what is evil, just like who else has done before this in the Bible? Adam and Eve. He's standing well and truly in their shoes. He takes over God's role. He turns away from having God direct what he does or does not do. He rejects God's word, which is tantamount to rejecting God himself. And that's supported through the rest of the chapter if you read it. Check it out with me. Look at verse 15. Do you notice what Saul says? He doesn't say, the Lord is my God. Instead, he says, the Lord, your God. The same thing occurs in verse 30. But now look at verse 12. Samuel goes to meet Saul. Saul has just returned from waging holy war for Yahweh or for the Lord. And where is Saul? Well, verse 12 spells it out. He headed off to Gilgal. Before he went to a place of worship, he first went to Carmel, To do what? To honour himself. He set up a monument in his own honour at Mount Carmel. It's clear that the Lord has been supplanted in Saul's affections. He is replaced by Saul himself in Saul's affections. He's a lover of himself. Saul has become a worshipper of himself. He has become an idolater. But there's more to notice. Take a look at verses 13 to 15. Samuel confronts Saul and Saul immediately passes the buck. He was given a command by God, but he accuses men of doing the wrong. Sisters and brothers in Christ. Visitors. I wonder if you can see what is going on here in this passage. Saul has broken the covenant obligations that were spelled out to him in 1 Samuel chapter 12. He has spoken and acted proudly in a way that is condemned in 1 Samuel chapter 2. He has not lived under God's word according to the rules of kingship spelled out in Deuteronomy 17. All of these are echoed in the passage. But the clearest of the echoes are from where? Garden of Eden. Think about it for a moment. Just as Adam and Eve were made rulers under God's rule, so was Saul. Just as God told them what was good and evil for them to do, so God told Saul. Just as they thought they knew better than God, so did Saul. Just as they replaced the rule of God with their own rules, so did Saul. Just as they became judges over God, so did Saul. Saul. And just as they shifted the blame from themselves to others, so Saul shifts the blame here. And with that in mind, you can now understand 22 to 23, can't you? Have a look at it. Then Samuel said, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. So can you see what's being said here? Let me just phrase it just slightly differently. We are now in a new Eden of the promised land. This happens in the promised land. And here... In the promised land, old sins are being done again. In the same way as people did in the original garden. Adam is at work again. And the sins of David, Saul and David and their successors will end in them being kicked out of the garden just as they did in Genesis 3. They will be in exile. Friends, please understand what I'm saying It's very important. My own view is that when we read this passage, we spend too much time focusing on Saul the individual. Saul is a representative here. He represents the kings of Israel. He represents all humans. He shows us what humans are like and we are like Adam and Eve in the garden. We know the will of God, but we fail to do it. Or we know the will of God, but we distill from it the parts that we, would, that we don't like and just don't bother with them. We make our own adjustments to what God is demanding of us. We stand over God's word, as it were, and we become judges of it. A little little tweaking of it here, a little self-justification here. We honour God in our own way rather than God's way. And do you know what that is called in the Bible? It's called being an idolater. Worshipper of yourself rather than worshipper of God who sets the standards for his world. And we who are readers of the Bible know what God does with such people. He casts them out of his presence. He punishes them for their sin. He did it with Saul. He did it with the Amalekites. He did it with Adam and Eve. And he will do it with us. Friends, I think, I've told you what I think are the main problems of this passage. I've told you what I think can be definitively said. What I want to do now is think about what can be said elsewhere from the Bible because what I've told you so far is tough, very tough. But I hope I've been playing with you. As we do what we're going to do now, I want to tell you that there are even some hints within this passage that lead us in the right direction. And here they are. Hint number one. The first hint is found in God's treatment of the Amalekites. You see, as harsh as his words are about the Amalekites, we ought not to forget that hundreds of years have passed since the Amalekites committed the sin they committed. And God has held off judgment as he is wont to do. Second hint is found in the treatment of Saul. You see, Saul's, deep, Saul's sin seems deep and his repentance seems shallow. But do you know what? God allows him to remain king for quite some time yet. What's more, God allows his dignity to be preserved. Samuel returns with Saul, the representative of God, before the elders of the people. Third hint comes from the word that appears in verses 11 and 29 and 35. That word I showed you earlier on. You see, this word has a long history in the Bible. It's a word that expresses God's grief and turmoil about sin. It appears in this way in Genesis 6 when we're told that the Lord regretted that he'd made humanity. And yet Genesis 6 to 9 tells us how God's mercy triumphs over judgment. He starts again with humans. And in Exodus 32 to 34, we're told that Israel sins a great sin in the sin of the golden car. And in the midst of this, we are told in the text that the Lord determines to punish by obliterating the nation and going on with Moses. But Moses, he goes to God, goes running to God and intercedes just like Samuel does here. And as a result of his intercession, God Changes his mind. And the word used for the changing of the mind is the same one used here in our passage for today. Then in Exodus 34, the Lord reveals himself to Moses and proclaims his nature. He is, this is my favourite verse in Scripture, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He does punish sin. But his disposition is overwhelmingly toward mercy and forgiveness. And as the Bible progresses, it is that disposition of God that causes prophets to add an extra line to the statement about God in Exodus 34. I want you to listen to it. It's in the book of Jonah. Jonah, chapter 4, verse 2. He's he's explaining why he fled from Tarshish and he says, I knew that you are gracious a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and listen for it and relenting from sending disaster. Do you hear that addition? Jonah says that the Lord is one who relents from sending disaster. And the word relent, that's the same word used three times in 1 Samuel 15. Can Can you see the problem humans have? On the one hand, we have a God who is grieved with sin. He's a God who's just and holy. He cannot relent concerning punishment. But on the other hand, he is a God whose heart is disposed for grace, mercy, love and forgiveness. How can those two things be reconciled in the same person? Well, we who are Christians here today know where the problem is solved it is solved on the cross for on the cross God treats sin as sin he doesn't change his mind regarding the evil of sin and its need for punishment no he doesn't lie about his own nature no he does not relent concerning punishment no but at the same time he does doesn't he He does relent and his mercy triumphs over judgment. And he therefore becomes both just and the justifier of the one who puts their trust in Jesus. That is the glory of the cross. That is the beauty of what we see God doing in Christ. How extraordinary! How overwhelmingly lovely this is. Now let me say that in many ways, God's mercy in Jesus has a dual impact when I read the passage. You see, I know I stand in line with Saul. Part of the reason I feel for him, because I recognise myself. I see his sin and I see my sin. I see his heart filled with self and I see my own. I see his darkness of understanding and I see my own. I hear his excuses and I hear my own. I listen to God's judgment and I know what I deserve. And then I look at the cross. And you know what? In some ways I feel worse. (laughs) After all, it's my sin that has driven him to the cross. But on the other hand, I'm overwhelmed with God's love and surprising, unobligated love and kindness. Who am I that he should have mercy on me? Who am I that he should relent concerning punishment? Friends, in the light of such mercy, we cannot come with the hollow repentance of Saul. There must be no excuses No more passing of blame. Instead, there must be rigorous dealing with sin. Confronting it, dealing with it. On the one hand, we must be people who repent with gusto, with earnestness, with alarm and concern. Knowing God's mercy, we must determine that we'll rid ourselves of the things of our sinful nature. We'll not allow sin to fester. Rather, we'll deal with it with rigor. And then, on the other hand, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, we will clothe ourselves with the things we see in God and in His Son. We will daily put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We will forgive as we have been forgiven we ourselves will let mercy triumph over judgment. We will bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances we have against each other. We'll forgive us the Lord has forgiven us in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, when we read Scripture, often we find it tough. And yet we thank you for this piece of scripture, which though it is tough, is filled with your kindness and mercy. But mostly, Father, we thank you that we see this kindness and mercy in the birth, life, death, resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you'd help us to forgive us. We have been forgiven. We pray this in and through Jesus, our Lord. Amen.